When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Ovation Show, where we're discussing the healthcare crisis in America. We're bringing partners, colleagues, clients, and business owners together to discuss solutions and innovations that bring a higher quality of care to employees while reducing their out-of-pocket costs, but we're also reducing the employer costs while giving them transparency and control. So welcome to The Ovation Show. Today, I am happy and excited to have one of my, I would say, colleagues, mentors, and just a great person that is changing our industry the way we're all trying to do, uh, the, the one and only David Contorno. David, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks, Dan. Uh, um, you know, you've got a good, great history. Um, you know, for currently, you know, you, you're founder and running e-powered benefits across the nation, doing amazing things for employers. Um, you're on the board for the Validation Institute. Um, I think you're, you're a strategic coach on the uh, Q4i, which I know Andrew McNerland talks about all the time, and amazing program and group. Uh, you've been featured in Forbes magazine. I mean, you're, you're this benefits, benefits guru. Um, we'll throw you in there. Um, but, you know, you, I've heard you speak a lot of times, and the things we talk about is, is first of all, we have to apologize to the community, the employers that are in around, you know, that we're serving because our industry has let them down. We've done so many wrong things over the years and decades. And, you know, now you and I are, are put with this challenge to change that. Expand on that. Tell me what you're doing, what we're doing as an industry to change that. Well, you know, first of all, a lot of people call me innovative or disruptive. I want everyone on this call, on this recording to know that I've, I've never even graduated college. And the college I did do was for but I literally learned everything I need to learn to fix healthcare by ninth grade economics. And if you don't see it as simple as that, and I'm largely talking to employers and to brokers, then you're not looking in the right place. Now, there's a lot of reasons and money flowing that encourage you to not look in the right place. But the reason that I tell employers when I first meet with them that I owe them apology is I give them an analogy. And I say, imagine for a minute if you went to go buy a new car. And your budget for that car was $300 a month. But you get to that dealership and that car salesperson is so good, you wind up with a $1,000 a month car payment. And sure enough, three or four months later, that car payment is just choking your family finances. So you and your significant other sit down at the coffee table and you say, we have to lower this car payment. Would an effective strategy to lower your car payment be switching from Allstate to Geico for your car insurance, even if you save 15% in 15 minutes? Is that going to lower your car payment even a penny? Of course not. What if you raised your deductible on your car insurance from $500 to $1,000? Is that going to lower your car payment a penny? No. What if you decided to forego car insurance and self-fund your car payment? accidents. I know you technically can't in most states, but let's pretend you could. So now you're going to put money away and when there's an accident, you're going to pay for it. Does that lower your $1,000 a month car payment? No. Similarly, switching from Blue Cross to United does not lower your healthcare costs. Raising your deductible does not lower your healthcare costs. Going from fully insured to self-funded in and of itself does not lower your healthcare costs. What I try and get employers to understand is that yes, our insurance sucks. But I believe, and if you look at any type of insurance, including health insurance, this is true. The quality and cost of the insurance is directly reflective of the quality and cost of what it is insuring. So if you are unhealthy and your life is worth a lot of money, your life insurance costs more. If your home is in a, fl a, fl a flood prone or fire prone area, 
How do you fix that? You move to another home that's not in those areas. You address the underlying cause. Now, nobody on this call is going to hear me talk about wellness as a way to lower costs. I do wellness is not a cost saver. It's an investment. And if you lower the cost of healthcare and save a ton of money, then you can use some of that savings to invest in the wellness of your employees. What I'm talking about is actually paying less for healthcare. And the real dynamic that allows us to do this, and there are some backwards economic principles, we're used to cost and quality being related to each other. As cost goes up, we expect quality go up. But in healthcare, the inverse is true. And so if you can help people identify where the high quality providers are that also tend to be on the lower cost, and then you motivate, incentivize, and educate people to go to those without necessarily prohibiting them from going anywhere, you can start to change behavior and you can start to instill the same consumerism in healthcare that those very same people do on every other purchase they make big and small, pasta, homes, and everything in between. You know, it's interesting you said that. I know we've looked up and I've seen you do slides too, and I've used them, um, pulling up numbers from like Medivy. And we look mm-hmm. at the billings of hospitals and in certain areas. So I know like in Dallas, I can pull up five hospitals and show the charges, they range from, you know, three, four, five hundred percent Medicare to eight hundred percent Medicare. But the funny part is the providers, when we look at their quality ratings, you're going, hey, this one is eight times what Medicare pays. It's 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 the most expensive hospital. It should be the best. And you look and their quality scores are much lower. Yep. So let me ask you this. So when you're look, working with clients and doing things, how do, how do you look at quality? I mean, how do you most would say, hey, they're in network. I'm going to go there. So right. how do we do that well, with quality? So I have spoken with a lot of doctors in my career, and a lot of them are part of a lot of networks. I have asked every single doctor that participates with a network the following question. Has any carrier ever asked you for any information in which they could interpret the quality of care that you provide? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, and I know a lot of doctors don't think that this is a indicator of quality of care, but a lot of patients do. So I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, About 54% of providers in Blue Cross and Blue Shields network are even board certified. So, you know, here's the, the, there's a dynamic with networks that I try and get people to understand. When I was born in the seventies, there were no networks. Everything was an indemnity plan. And not only was it an indemnity plan, but it worked the way insurance was meant to work, which was You know, my mother had to pay for my birth and then submit and get reimbursed. And I know that sounds inconvenient, but let me tell you what that does. It prohibits hospitals and doctors from charging prices that the average American can't afford because they can't lay it out then. So there was inherent price controls just in removing the insurance from being the direct payer to the patient being the payer and then getting reimbursed. But uh, what I'm saying right now is is conjecture, but I, I bet you it happened at least to some extent. But you know, 40 years ago there were no networks, and I just imagine some broker somewhere walked to some CFO somewhere and said, "Hey, listen, I know right now you can see any doctor you want, your employees can see any doctor you want, but I have this crazy thing called an HMO. And the premise of an HMO is if we take a high volume of patients and we funnel them to a low volume of doctors, we're going to get reimbursement discounts in exchange. And furthermore, we're going to stick a primary care physician in the middle where they have to get referrals to go to the specialist so that people don't go to specialists, which are more expensive unless it's clinically appropriate to do so. And I can imagine that CFO saying, a network of providers, you mean almost all my employees have to change doctors? That's crazy. There's no way. And that broker would have said, I know, I know, but look at the savings. Look at how much money you can save. So the CFO being a CFO, they're intrigued by the savings. That's part of what we talk to CFOs about. But I imagine there was some CFO somewhere that said to that broker, listen, I like the idea. I'm willing to make all my employees change doctors, but there's one problem. My wife's OBGYN is not in your HMO and there's no way I can go home tonight with my wife not being able to go see her OBGYN. If you get that OBGYN in, I'll move my whole company to your HMO. So that broker calls up his buddy, the carrier exec that they played golf with last week. And he says, if you get this one OBGYN and we're in. So that carrier exec calls his provider relations and says, you get that OBGYN in at any cost. It's one doctor, I don't care. I wanna get 10,000 members or whatever the number is. And so two things occurred there instantaneously. Pressure to expand the network, right? is starting to occur. And today, most networks have 97% of providers in it. If How are you getting any discounts on reimbursement when 97% of your competition mm-hmm. is also in the network? 
But I imagine a couple of years later, another conversation occurred. Now that broker is dealing mainly with HR and HR is sick of complaints from their employees. Why do I need a referral to go see my dermatologist? If I have a thing on my skin, I should just be able to go to a dermatologist. So that HR person said, hey, listen, can you get rid of these referrals? My employees hate it. And boom, now we're back to essentially no network when everybody's in network, (laughs) number one, and number two, no gatekeeper, and number three, no cost control. And so we essentially did this to ourselves. Granted, it was death by a thousand cuts. This wasn't like one major thing overnight. But, um, but we, we uh, the, the American people, the employers, the patients really put the pressure on what it became. And one thing I definitely want to talk about is how the insurance industry and the healthcare industry filled in behind that and figured out a way to maximize revenue around those very same things that we were asking for. Well, it's funny you talk about the costs. And I use this example speaking a few times and I'll say, okay, employers are in the room and I say, hey, how many of you give every employee in your company a you know, a credit card with no limit and no one raises their hand. And I go, you're liars. I go, how many, I said, every single one of your employees have a card, a credit card, and they can use it anytime they want for as much as they want. And it just happens to say Blue Cross, United Healthcare, Cigna. And they're like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And again, where's that cost control? Who's overseeing that? If you give your employee a credit card, you know, and I have my employees, guess what? One has a thousand dollar limit, one has a 500 limit. I can limit what they do. If they want to spend more, they have to talk to me, go through process, validate it. And I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, and I think you even mentioned that in one of your talks, you, you do the same thing, you bring that up. We do, and, and we actually look at it from both sides of the fence. I mean, I say to that employer, you know, they say, well, you know, I don't want to be telling my employees what kind of healthcare to get. And my response to them is, I get that. You probably don't want to tell your employees where to sleep at night or what kind of car to drive. But when they're traveling on the company dime, you not only feel obligated to tell them those things, but actually you have a responsibility. Why? Because if they abuse the company, it doesn't just hurt you or the owners. It hurts every single other employee at the firm. And the Mm -hmm. same thing is true on the health plan. You not only have a, a right to this information and how your employees are using the health plan, but you have a responsibility to manage it properly. And the, the flip to that is when employees recognize that there is more transparency in our model, and every once in a while, someone will say, does this mean that my employer is going to know about my health care? And I said, not necessarily. There's a really, really <clears throat> easy way for your employer to not know anything about your health care. Don't ask them to pay for it. Oh, yeah. That's a great comment. I like that. You know, so, um, you know listen. Healthcare okay. doesn't have to be paid for by health insurance. A lot of people think it is, but yeah. we, we need to segregate healthcare from health insurance and understand like we do in everything else. We don't intermingle the car insurance or home and home insurance, but with health and health insurance, healthcare and health insurance, we, we intermingle those things. And when you start to separate those two things and you look at healthcare on its own and you start to recognize there are multiple ways to pay for healthcare. And I, I want to give another statistic, particularly to employers that is really telling and very contrary to what they believe. You know, every time they go to the doctor or the hospital, they get an EOB and it says the doctor asked for this, the discount was 30% because of your carrier's great work and the net price was that. So when a doctor or hospital in particular looks at their revenue streams, there's really kind of five large buckets. They bucket all the carriers into one bucket, they call that commercial. There's Medicare, Medicaid, cash pay, and you know charitable or financial assistance. I mean, those are like the five biggest buckets. And I love asking employers all the time, which one of those five buckets do you think is the highest price paid in healthcare by about two to three times the next highest one on average? And you know, sometimes they know it's a trick question, so they guess it's the, uh, the commercial insurance, but usually they don't know why or how. And I even go into stories about how hospitals have actually tried to suppress the mix of lower revenue sources when they're trying to go for financing for a loan or building a building or something, because the more they have coming in from commercial, the more revenue they have coming in, the more profitable that money is coming in, and the more the banks consider that to be a cash flow positive situation. So that's another thing. You think you're getting a discount with insurance and you are but you're getting a discount off a price that nobody ever actually pays it's funny when i was thinking about this there was growing up back in massachusetts i remember there was a uh, a, a, a store chain like a target but i don't know what it was called back then and they would have these sales and they'd go oh it's 50 percent off 30 percent off and you rush to the store to go buy these sales and then you get there and you're like 
well, it's 30% off, but the price is almost the same as his regular price. And you're like, why? And they actually got a lawsuit and got in trouble because when they mm-hmm. were having a sale, they jacked the price up. So yep. you say, hey, no. it's $100, now it's 200 but we're giving you 50% off, you're paying the same price. And we see a lot of that. It, you know, that's really what networks do, in, our, in my opinion. You know? yep. Um, yep. But going back I to I can even reinforce that, by the way, Dan, oh, yeah, because go for it. Macy's, national retailer, got in trouble for that. And they're, go- they're in trouble now, so they don't have a lot of TV commercials. But if you can find one even on YouTube, when they got sued for that very same thing, especially on jewelry, they were, they were saying that you know, no one would ever buy jewelry at Macy's that's not right. on sale, just like someone wouldn't buy anything at Kohl's that's not on sale. But <laughs> in, the, in the later commercials, they actually said on some of their items, um, the original price may not have resulted in actual sales. That was how they caveated that to get yeah. around that. To get around it. Going back to something you mentioned about healthcare, and I know and I love it because Lester Morales brought this up one time during a speech. And, you know, when he spoke for me at an event, is, you know, we look at healthcare and health insurance, and they're really two different things. But I'm driving through Dallas, and there's a billboard up by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas. And it basically mm-hmm. says, providing the care, you know, like I can't remember verbatim, I was looking for it today, providing the best care in Texas. Yeah. And I'm like, they don't provide any care, Mm-mm. but yeah. that's what they're advertising. That's where they're creating that comfort of that logo. And yep. Lester talks yeah. about that a lot. And you talk a lot about healthcare versus health insurance. Can you expand on that part? Yeah. So the as a, as a illustrated by the the car payment example, okay, you cannot make your car payment lower through insurance. You cannot make your healthcare expenses lower through insurance. As a matter of fact, with traditional insurance, the exact opposite occurs. And I hope we get to talk about some of the actual financial principles as to why that is. But even if we don't get to that, or even if I don't explain it in a way that people in this that live, that are listening to this don't understand, just look at the results you've been getting for the last 20 or 30 years. And then look at the stock prices of the very same entities that you're dealing with. If you don't think that higher prices equals more uh, profit and revenue for these entities, then you are just mistaken. Um, so, if, if, if I can get people to believe and understand and look at other types of insurance and understand that we, in order to fix this problem, we need to fix health care, not health insurance. Health insurance is not the focus here. It's the result. It's the result of crappy behavior over here, or it's the result of good behavior over here. And that's the way people need to think of it. And as soon as you do that, you're going to, trima- if we can get the country to understand this, we are going to dramatically change the skill set and expertise that every single broker or consultant in this country needs to have and that the huge majority of them don't have right now. When I was a traditional broker, I had a lot of expertise on insurance. But let's face it, when you're just looking at insurance and you're trying to navigate that for your clients, everything, nothing is proactive. You can't be. So when I recognize that I can fix insurance by fixing what it's paying for, I really started to dig into how healthcare is not only paid for, but also how doctors are compensated, because that plays into it. How insurance companies make money, what is their motivation? Because one of the things I believe, and it's probably true in the entire world, but I think it's particularly true in the US, is that if you look at who benefits financially when, those are the headwinds that are going to prevail. So the only way that an employer is going to change this for substantially and for a long period of time is to understand who's making money when and change how they make money. So let me give an example. And this is one that I know, Dan, you and I know like the back of our hand and a lot of our industry knows it, even though many of them won't talk about it because it doesn't benefit them. But a lot of people think, uh, and, and this is the way I'll pose it. So you're in Texas. So let's use Texas. And let's pretend that you're in a CFO. And I'll say, hey, Dan, listen, uh, I'm the CEO of United Healthcare for the state of Texas. I run the entire state. And I'm going to propose a, a scenario to you. I have to file my rates in a few months for 2020 my fully insured plans in the entire state of Texas. So in order to figure out what my rates are, I need to figure out what my biggest expenses are going to be, which are cost of medical care and cost of prescription care. So I go to my very well-paid actuaries and I say, hey guys, how much in 2022 do you think everybody on United Healthcare fully insured plan in the state of Texas is going to spend on medical and prescription costs? Let's pretend they come back with a number of $850 million. So I'm like, okay, I can wrap my head around that. I'm going to file my rates 
to bring in a billion dollars in 2022 so that I have 850 million to pay the medical care and I have 150 million with which to pay my own expenses. United Healthcare is a publicly traded company, so I better send a piece of that up to Minnesota for profit, right? Good. So 2022 comes along. January, I'm collecting one twelfth of a billion. February, one twelfth of a billion. Well, end of the year comes. And I'd say to you, Dan, you've been with United Healthcare for a few years now. You know all those cost containment tools they've been throwing at you all along? Let's pretend in 2022 they actually work. And instead of $850 million in claims, everyone on my plan only spends $425 million, exactly half. Does my profit go up or go down in that situation? Now, if the CFO is smart, they, they know it's a trick question. So they're thinking, of course, it goes up. You collected a billion. You only spent $425 million. But if they do, they know it's a trick question and say, down? They don't know how. So let me explain it to those that may not know. As part of the Affordable Care Act, and this was true even before 2010 when this passed, but as part of the Affordable Care Act, there's a provision in there called medical loss ratios. And it says that every single insurance company in the country must follow either an 80-20 or 85-15 loss ratio. So 85-15 is for companies 50 above. That's where most sit. So let's pretend that's the case. So for every dollar they collect in premium, they must spend 85 cents. That's why when they had 850 million of predicted claims, a billion dollars was the right number. But if they only spent 425 million in claims, I would have to return not only the 425 million in claims I didn't spend, but I'm still not at the 85-15 ratio. I'd also have to return to you, everyone on my plan, 75 million of my overhead and profit. So what this dynamic did is it put the insurance companies even more firmly into a path where higher claims equals higher revenue, higher revenue equals higher profit. But wait, Dan, I forgot <laughs> to tell everyone that you're self-insured with United Healthcare. So the medical loss ratio doesn't apply to your plan. And you're correct in a student saying that. However, you put yourself on all the same claims adjudication platforms, all the same PPO contracts, all the same pharmacy contracts in which that rule does apply. So how do you think you're not going to be affected by it just the same? And whatever small risk the carrier did have when you were fully insured, you took off your sh their shoulders and put on yours. Not sure that was the smartest move in the world. At the end of the day, when you stick in a traditional PBM and a traditional network, I don't care if fully insured or self-insured, you've preordained to your cost to be largely the same and continue on the same trajectory. Well, I love that. We, we've got clients and prospects that have come from, say, Cigna, Blue Cross. Oh, we're fully, we're self-funded. We're self-funded. I'm like, you're self-funded, but you're still not in the right position. You're still letting them control the cost. You're still overpaying. You're still at profit leak and overspending. We have to go through that process. But, you know, that kind of led into some things we've talked about on you know, the system as far as healthcare goes, we have some of the best healthcare in the country. The healthcare mm -hmm. system is not broken. It's really the billing and who's paying for it and how much we're charging for it and who's benefiting from that. And you, you alluded to, you know, or you said it flat out, you know, United Healthcare is showing profits. So talk yeah. a little bit about that. You know, the system's not broken. Yeah. Who's actually benefiting it? And we even said in the very beginning about as, a, as an industry, even our own broker consultant partners or friends or colleagues, they're benefiting off these higher costs. Oh, yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Well, so the average broker, let's start with where the employer is getting the bulk of their advice. It's the broker or the consultant, right? And in the huge majority of cases, and there are a few exceptions, although I even think those exceptions don't solve the problem entirely, but the huge majority of cases, brokers have two types of compensation, disclosed and non-disclosed. The most common form of disclosed compensation is commission. Uh, the problem with commission is that as the client's rates go up, so too does the broker's <laughs> revenue. So unless the broker thought they were in jeopardy of losing the business, if they even had a strategy to save 40%, which most don't, why would they bring that to you? I mean, listen, when I was a traditional broker, I remember bragging to my friends who ran other businesses, and I would say to them, I have no accounts receivable. I have no inventory that depreciates. I have... Absolute guarantee of payment because I don't, and a, a, a company is going to not pay their electric bill before they're not going to pay their health insurance bill. I get a 10% minimum pay raise every year with not having to do any more work. I mean, it's an ideal model. It's great for the broker. It's not good for the client who's footing that. And because it comes through the carrier, it's typically not even really measured or noticed. I mean, I go, when I was going in paying commission, I was sitting with an employer pretending to represent their interests, but I was being paid by a third party. Imagine if someone went to go buy a house 
And they found out that their real estate agent was also representing the seller of that house. That's illegal in most states. And in the few states that is legal, it must be fully disclosed and signed off on by all parties. <clears throat> Not in our business. It's totally uh, allowed and yeah. expected. So the most common form of disclosed compensation is commission. Some of them do a flat fee, but even that doesn't uh, reverse that perverse incentive. It might minimize it, but it doesn't reverse it. But there's another form of compensation, the undisclosed compensation. And this varies in its format and scope, but I can tell you that when I was the top producers with United and Blue Cross, I was getting um, trips to Ireland for golf, not, not golf down the road, but like Ireland, um, entire cruise ships rented out for private events for a week. Pinehurst in North Carolina, which is a few hours away from here, one of the top golf courses in the country. I mean, the list goes on. There was a carrier in New York that I don't work with anymore that offered you an opportunity to uh, be pitched the ball by Mariano Rivera. Like we're talking insane stuff. And here's the way they implement those. They do it based on either new business or persistency of existing business or both. So I'm telling you, everyone right now, guys, and your brokers, if you're an employer are getting these calls, I would get a call from Blue Cross and Blue Shield right around this time of the year. And it'll be one of two things. <clears throat> David, if you lose one more group, you're currently on track for a $250,000 bonus. That's going to get knocked down to $100,000 or less if you lose one more group. Or, hey, David, you know that quote we just sent you? Well, if you write that, your bonus is going to go from $100,000 to $250,000. All you need is one more group to get in that tier. So um, that's the way they influence them to do what they want to do. Um, and... It works. I promise you, if it didn't work, um, they wouldn't be spending the hundreds of millions of dollars they do it. Just like another area of our healthcare, which is broken and, and it works, is drug advertising. <clears throat> There's only two countries in the world in which drug advertising is even allowed. And I want to let people know how dirty the pharmaceutical business is. <clears throat> do you guys ever notice that you see a commercial for a drug heavily for weeks every day over and over and over again and then it disappears you know why that is it's because they are advertising in a way that knowingly violates the fda guidelines for drug advertising but by the time the fda finds out and the only consequence by law is they ask them to remove the tv ad they have already altered prescribing habits of patients and doctors and now people are on that drug in droves and once they're on it just like any yeah. other drug, including street drugs, they're on it. So they do that intentionally to mislead. And of course, why are they even advertising to patients when I can't go buy it? Only in America and New Zealand is that even permitted. That's, that's interesting you say that because I watch those drug commercials and we do a lot of pharmacy PBM consulting. That's become a new, just an easy way to look at a self-funded employer and drop 40% off their, you know, their pharmacy expenses. But every time I see a commercial, I pull up on GoodRx somewhere and I'm looking up, what does that cost? What does that cost? And these are, you know, 1,000, yep. 2,000, 5,000 undisclosed price. I'm like, these are the most expensive drugs out there that are being yep. pushed in people's faces. And, and again, they, they go in, they go, they get their doctor, the doctor prescribes it because he has no idea the cost. And suddenly it's on your health plan and trying to get people off of it into something that works the same, that's lower, is a challenge. Um, yep. But, you know, it all goes back to, you mentioned something earlier, and, and the misaligned aligned incentives. And what I want to do is take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. And I want to jump right back into that. Super. Hi, this is Tony Martinez, and I'd like to introduce you to Work Innovators Network at VentureX at the Realm at Castle Hills. We'd like to be your experts to tell your story, to put you on our billboards, and showcase your expertise. What's different now than what's been done in the past? We are using media and technology to disrupt the
So going back to misaligned aligned incentives, I wrote an article, God, I think it was six, seven years ago, um, called uh, Brokers Are Overpaid. And I actually got hate mail from a broker in the mail with an article. It was written. It was sent out. He printed it off, sent it back to me, and basically was like, why are you causing problems? Because that article went out, and one of his clients called him and asked him, how are we getting paid? How much are you making? Why aren't I getting all these services? Why am I doing this? And, and that caused a lot of problems because I believed a long time ago that most brokers were getting overpaid. They were either getting commissions, which they can't control, but they were giving less services for it, and they're just profiting off that. Or like we've talked about, they're getting, you know, employers are getting 5 10 20% increases, and the broker is making more money for doing a shitty job. Yep. Yep, and, and I so, will tell you, oh, go ahead. I had an equally un, equally uncomfortable situation with an article that I didn't even write. It was written by Marshall Allen, but I was featured in Love it. Love Marshall Allen. <laughs> He's going to be then, on here uh, next month. <laughs> excellent. <clears throat> Great book he just wrote. And then, um, but a week later after that article came out, not even, two days later, I was attending a National Association of Health Underwriters, uh, their, their capital conference in D.C., and it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because – Listen, I'm part of NAHU. I have been for a really long time, but the huge majority of people in NAHU are, you know, fully insured brokers that are in that model. And listen, I I took a very offensive stance and I I take it a little bit differently now. I I don't, I don't think any, most brokers are intentionally having costs go up. I don't think they're intentionally putting products that are more expensive in front of their, in front of their clients. Some do, no doubt. But the problem is when you when you are a commission-based broker, you have certain protections, certain complacency, and more importantly, you're only going to go to places where you're going to get paid. So you have this box of solutions that's B, U, C, A, or H, and maybe a K in there, and that's it. When you get paid the way we do, which is by the client directly and with a performance incentive tied to lowering costs – the biggest difference is, is that box just disappears and now you can go anywhere to, to, to solve yep. the issue. Yeah, we've seen that and we're doing it with even the pharmacy consulting side is instead of saying, hey, it's a commission, we are going to, we're gonna, you're gonna charge you a fee to implement, to manage, and it's gonna be a small fee to cover our costs, but we need to make money. And so if I hit certain performance metrics, you're gonna pay me a bonus or you're gonna pay me a fee based on my results. So if I'm successful and I save you this much money, you're going to be a small portion of that. And I know that's where a lot of, you know, whether it's the next gen mastermind or the brokers that you're talking to, we're talking to, or that we're, you know, all of us, that's what we're going for is let's, you know, are you going to pay, give an employee a raise for doing a shitty job every year? Right. I mean, yeah. yeah hey, here's 10, and, here's and, 10% increase because you, you suck at your job. I'm going to keep you right. too. I'm going to keep right. you too. <laughs> yep. And with that model, the worst job the broker does, the more of a pay raise they get. Yep. And I want to point out, it's not just brokers that operate that way. I told you insurance companies, right? The yep. worst job they do at managing costs, the more money they make. But I want to talk for a second about doctors. Now, a lot of people, for some reason, put their doctor up on a pedestal. They somehow herald them as though they're better human beings than the rest of us. I am friends with a lot of doctors. Some of my best friends are doctors. They are no better human beings than any employee, the janitor, the CEO, and anyone in between that don't care. They put their pants on one leg at a time. They have debt and divorces and homes to pay. So let me tell you real quick how the average doctor, especially ones that are part of the large health systems are paid. They're of course paid a salary, but that salary is influenced by two main factors. Number one is the volume of patients they see. The more patients they see in a day, the more money they make. Now, if you're the health system, that makes sense, right? You want as many patients coming through the door as possible. The more patients you see, the more services you provide, the more money you make. But from a patient perspective, the more patients I see in a day, the less time I spend per patient. But there's another metric that's a little more hidden and it's called an RVU or a relative value unit. What the health systems do is they measure how much money I generate in other parts of the healthcare system. Makes sense from a health system perspective. The more money that I help generate in other parts of their business units, the more money they pay me for that, almost like a commission. So if I'm a primary care doctor and you come into me, Dan, because your back is hurting me, let's say, hurting you, my most profitable path by far is to write you a script for an opioid because that gets you out the door as quick as possible. And we know there's an opioid epidemic in this country. The largest uh, percentage of opioid addicts started with a legitimate prescription taken as prescribed and paid for by your employer's health plan. And one (laughs) other step 
is to refer him to my buddy, the back surgeon. Now, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the saying, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What do you think everything looks like to a back surgeon? Back surgery, perhaps? <laughs> to them, it's not a big deal. It's how they make the most amount of money. They do back surgeries every day. But back surgery is the not only one of the highest areas of, ortho, of, of healthcare in general where mistreatment is done, but it's actually the, in, in orthopedics, the highest area as well. Um, and the most likely outcome of back surgery is another back surgery. Um, and so the, you're much better off looking at other potential interventions, whether it's steroid shots or physical therapy or chiropractor or so on and so forth, but the doctor's not incentivized to send you down that path. And then think about it. If you do have back surgery, if you have multiple back surgeries in particular, that's really good for the back surgeon. That's really good for your insurance company. If you're on a fully insured plan, it just benefits everybody. So Everybody is of the mindset, brokers, doctors, hospitals, hospital administrators, pharmacy benefit managers, pharmaceutical manufacturers, all of them, more is better. And you made a comment earlier. You said, we have really good healthcare in this country. And I just want to caveat that. We do. But we also have a lot of really crappy care in this country. As a matter of fact, in aggregate, our healthcare system lags every single other industrialized nation and some third world nations. We do have some really good spots of care, but I'll give you an example. The Cleveland Clinic, it's a name that everybody knows. They are really bad at a lot of things. They are really good at certain things. But just a couple hours ago, I had a conversation with my Jewish mother who's going to the Cleveland Clinic for bowel issues. And I tried to disavow her of going there because that's not what they're good at. And she's like, I wish you hadn't told me because that's where I'm going. And I said, I wish you wouldn't go there because I told you. But the point is, if you can identify true cost and true quality, and you create an environment where people were incentivized to go to where the quality is the highest and the cost is the lowest, everything changes because the variations in cost and quality are so massive in healthcare, hundreds of percent, as you pointed out earlier uh, before. You know, I like you're talking about the quality and care, and, and we need to focus on that. But part of that issue also is how do we get employees there? So I can go into an employer and get them sold on this whole process and the idea and cost savings, but also a higher quality of care. But now we have to get the employees past this point of, but but they're I don't they're not a network or I don't know what to do. There's no network. How do I do yeah. this? And so again, education falls on that. But I know you talk a lot about employee centered care. And in mm -hmm. fact, I think even the E and E power does it means employee. At least you've said that once yep. before. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. but so where where is your philosophy, or how do you do that, or where do you see you know to get the employees engaged where they're on on that they're using what we're talking about and they're going the path we're, we're laying out for them. You know, if we're gonna lay that out with the help of the employer because at the end of the day, um, you know, I'd like for all the employers who are listening to this, I want you to if you can't if you don't know this off the top of your head. Go ask your CFO. But over the last year, I just want you to take the total amount you spent in healthcare for your company. And then I want you to divide that by the average number of employees you had over that same time period. And that metric is going to give you your per employee per year cost. This is the metric that we use to measure our performance because we have companies, some of which grow or lay people off. And this normalizes any fluctuations in enrollment. Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation estimates those to be around fifteen or $16,000 per employee per year. So the first thing I want employers to understand is that when you build a plan the way we do, and I, I say you and I, but that's a very, very short list of people doing it. Um, and I don't know your exact numbers, but our plans typically run between 3,300 and 7,700 per employee per year. So whatever starting point an employer is listening to this, that your starting point is your starting point. That's where we get them to. But why is there such a wide range? Well, there's such a wide range because we have different levers that we can pull within that. So if I was, if an employer said, David, do whatever it takes to have the greatest impact on costs and the greatest impact on clinical improvement, um, what I would, I would um, create something that looks similar to the gated HMOs I talked about earlier, but we do it using something called a direct primary care provider or DPC. And I don't know if you've ever done um, one of the shows on DPC, but um, something uh, yeah, that, if not- Coming up soon. <laughs> good. Uh, well, DPC fundamentally changes the way that primary care doctor gets paid. Uh, and it really brings them to like a Netflix subscription model. 
So in a DPC environment, the plan or the member, very few plans are doing this. To my knowledge, when we built a plan about three or four years ago that embedded DPC, and I think it was the first plan in the nation that I've been able to find. We have several up and running since, but um, you find that direct primary care provider who is paid a flat monthly fee per patient, regardless of utilization, regardless of visits, it doesn't matter. And there's no copay, there's no claims filing. So the first thing you understand is that the overhead to that doctor's office is substantially lower than if they're dealing with insurance companies. Secondly, because they're getting a monthly fee, two things occur. Number one, the average primary care doctor is going to have between two and 4,000 patients assigned to them in their panel to feed the system that they need. Typical DPC doctors have like four to 600. So far fewer patients. That makes them more available with a lot more time to spend with those patients. Number two, when they're paid a flat monthly fee, the dynamic changes. In a traditional doctor, the more they do, the more they touch, the more they poke, the more they prod, the more money they make. In a DPC environment, the exact opposite is true. So their goal is to get you as healthy as possible, as quick as possible. And I know this is another extreme, but the opposite of the way the traditional doctor is paid is the way doctors were paid in ancient Chinese medicine. Really interesting concept. Back then, doctors only got paid when their patients were healthy. And the second they got sick, they stopped getting paid. And furthermore, if surgery was required, it was considered a failing of the doctor to properly control the disease to have it lead to surgery. Wow. Can you think about how different that yeah. is compared to what we have today? So in the full out model where we're going to get the lowest per employee per year cost, we would put a plan in place where all members had to be assigned a direct primary care provider and they were not permitted to go to a specialist unless they got a referral from that direct primary care provider. And with all the other things we do on like the pharmacy side and stuff like that, that's where we're going to get the lowest PEPY, but not a lot of employers let us do that. So some employers will let us offer two plan options, one that works the way I just described and one that works that lets you see any provider and then employees pick between the two. But what's interesting is, is when you properly educate people on a DPC plan, we typically get about 50% of employees take it the first year with an uptick in year two and three and four. Uh, the quality of care is just so much better. I use a direct primary care for myself and my wife and my children. Um, we believe in it wholeheartedly. So there are certain levers in there. And, and you know as well or better than most that um, on the pharmacy side, we could exclude specialty. You know, mm -hmm. we could do certain things that, that, uh, enhance that as well. But at the end of the day, I can assure every employer that may be listening to this, the following, any plans that we build is going to put something forth that most plans don't. It's going to put forth a, a focus on quality first, cost second, always in that order. And it is going to work hard to make sure that your employees get the right care they need, the right medication they need at the right time, at the right place, at the right price. And those are the orders of preference, of, of importance. Prices last, but right now we're not looking at price at all. Quality is first, but right now we're not looking at quality at all either in general. I love it. You're echoing everything that I say and that I talk about. And it's great to hear from other people that are, you know, again, started before me doing these things. Um, so, you know, kind of in closing, I think, so we, for the CFOs and the even HR people that are listening, you know, what would you say the first I don't know, first three or four steps they need to do, you know, besides some say, oh, recognize there's a problem. Well, a lot of times they don't know. But what would you yeah. say the first three or four things that they need to do to get on this path of better care, better quality care, which results in lower costs and control of costs? Yep. I would ask questions of your current broker and carrier. And let me give you a few anecdotes to, to think about. Um, so my beautiful wife, she needed a hysterectomy a few years ago. Now, a few stats on hysterectomies. There are 550,000 hysterectomies done in the US each year. There are about 58,000 OBGYNs. That means the average uh, OBGYN does eight or nine hysterectomies a year. First question. I'm not a big sports guy, so I apologize. This <laughs> probably isn't the most on-point uh, metaphor, but I think everyone will understand. Tiger Woods won the Masters a couple years ago, right? After being down and out for a little while. Does anybody on uh, who that Tiger Woods got back to the top of professional golf by practicing eight or nine times a year? He probably practiced eight or nine times a week, right? Yep. But listen to how backwards our system is. When doctors are trained surgery, especially general doctors like OBGYNs, they're trained uh, with open surgical techniques. The 
opposite of that or the alternative to that is laparoscopic and laparoscopic is where they make smaller incisions and they use tools to do inside versus opening a much larger incision but if i only do eight or nine hysterectomies a year why am i going to even look into that because if i did want to do laparoscopic hysterectomies i have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on additional equipment I have to spend dozens of hours on additional training. And then the traditional health insurance plan considers that to be a less invasive procedure. So I'm going to get a lower reimbursement rate for only eight or nine times a year. Why would I even do that? But for the patient, a laparoscopic hysterectomy is way better. It's one to two days recovery time instead of two weeks. It's no opioids. It's just ibuprofen. When my wife had her hysterectomy done, it was an hour and 27 minutes the doctor gave, who we're now friends with, but the doctor gave us the entire surgery on USB drive. You find me any doctor <laughs> willing to do that. But here was the most amazing part. The average price of a hysterectomy in the US is $38,000. We had a pre-arranged, pre-negotiated and bundled price. And bundled means that if there's a mistake, an infection or a redo, that is on the provider of $11,000. Yep. So here's the question that I, one of several questions that I think an employer should ask their broker and their carrier is if I am able to find a provider that is that good and that low cost, I want my employees to be able to go there and I want the out-of-pocket waived, right? Because it makes sense. Would, would I rather my health plan pay 80% of $38,000, leave my employee owing almost eight grand and I pay 30? Or instead, would I prefer to pay 11 grand for that surgery and have my employee owing nothing? And I look like a hero because I covered 100% of the care. They get back to work in one to two days, so they're a better employee and they're healthier and feeling better. Now, I'll give you a, a hint as to what the answer is going to be. It's going to be no. And let me tell you why. Again, let's use the Cleveland Clinic as an example. If there's an employer in Cleveland, any employer, I don't care how big they are, if they were to leave a ca carrier like United Healthcare, United Healthcare's balance sheet of $220 billion of revenue a year is not even going to be dented in any measurable way. But if Cleveland Clinic left United Healthcare, then every employer in Cleveland and the surrounding metro area is leaving. And because those large centers have that leverage, let me tell you what they do. When their negotiation comes up with the carrier, they go with the carrier willingly into a backdoor, no window, locked room with every non-disclosure on every conversation and contract that's about to come out of that conversation. And the hospital says to the insurance company, if you want the privilege of having us in your network, number one, no auditing. You can't audit our bills. And that's why over 80% of hospital bills have errors that are always mm. in the favor of the hospital. But they also put in non-steerage clauses. So Cleveland Clinic says, we'll be in your network, but you can't make it financially advantageous for your members to go to our competition. So you literally can't do what I just described. I want to pose another question to employers to ask their broker. And this is particularly true of those that are self-funded with the carrier managing the pharmacy. I am sure that everyone on this call has seen a drug commercial. And at the end of the drug commercial, it says, if you can't afford your medication, AstraZeneca may build health. Say it really fast, really low. Let me tell you <laughs> what they're advertising there. And I know you already know this, Dan, but they're talking about a manufacturer's assistance program. And the pharmaceutical yep. companies, they didn't do it because they want to. They did it because when they got massively high prices under Medicare Part D, when George Bush II was president, this was one of the very small caveats they had to do to get this ridiculously high price from the government. And it basically says that if there's someone who meets certain income thresholds and there's no coverage for the drug under their health plan, then the manufacturer must send that drug to that person for free. So let me explain what no coverage means. You have a high deductible HSA. One of your employees makes $30,000 a year. She's diabetic. Her medication, she has an $8,000 deductible before her medication is covered at full. She has $800 in her savings account. Her medication is $3,000 a month. She can't get it, but she doesn't qualify for that program. So I want any self-insured self employer who's listening to this to go to their HR or go to their carrier and say, do we have one drug, super high cost in our data set? And most yep. employers, you're going to have one person, almost always a spouse for some reason, but one person taking one drug that's really expensive and blowing up your pharmacy plan. Then I want you to find out the income of that person. And I want you to go to the manufacturer's website and see what the income levels are for the for the manufacturer assistance program. They're usually pretty high, especially compared to what working class America makes. If that person qualifies under that program, 
then I want you to call your broker or call your pharmacy benefit manager or your carrier, and I want you to ask them to remove the drug from coverage. By doing so, that member gets that program opened up, and now they're going to get the drug not just for free to your health plan, but for free to them too. Yep. But the PBM won't do it. And the reason the yep. PBM won't do it is because they make money when they fill drugs. And I know it's not really um, a topic for this, especially towards the end, but, and you can talk about this as much, probably more than I can, but when you talk about spread pricing and rebates yeah. and clawbacks, they make so much money on that. They're going to give you a whole line, no, clinically, discrimination, whatever, but none of that is true and they're not going to do it. So those are the kind of questions you should be asking. And, and I'll, I'll give one last tip to any employer who's listening to this. If your carrier or your broker or your consultant is not able to show you exactly how and where on a claim by claim, procedure by procedure basis that they are going to lower costs, I, I'm not talking about the discount. If the, if the carrier comes in and says, but we have a bigger discount than you're currently getting, ask them this question. Okay, but is the starting price guaranteed to be the same? And the answer is going to be no. So if the discount, if the starting price is variable, then a, a static discount doesn't mean anything. Those are the questions you should be asking. And, and back to what I said at the beginning, I learned everything I needed to learn to fix this by ninth grade economics. I just needed to know where to look. There are so many business owners in this country that are so smart and running successful businesses, and they put more effort into managing the cost of their paper clips than they do into the knee surgery or the chemotherapy or the MRI that their employees are getting. And I just can't help but think if more employers turn their intelligence and their experience to this, if they recognize that this is a business unit that is sucking resources from their business and put the people and the intelligence and the education into this, they would come up with way better ideas yep. than I'm coming up with. <laughs> well, I think you hit one of the key things there that it is a business unit. It is a top three, five, you know, expense of their business. And I think it gets overlooked by CEO, CFO. It's more HR looks at it and says, hey, here's our increase. Here's the budget for the year. Okay, I guess I got to approve it. Instead of saying, how do we control that? How do we reduce that? Like they would do with any other line item expense on, on their P&L. So yep. um, fantastic. This is awesome. And actually, we're going to have to do, I'm going to do another episode on uh, pharmacy and PBMs. And you're going to come on with me. Because I've got some great examples and stories of things we're doing and you do too. Um, but David, this has been fantastic. I love having you on. It's always great to talk to you and see you. Um, congratulations on getting married. I know that was, what, a Thank month you. ago? In fact, yep. Andrew McNerlin at EBS, uh, he told me to tell you congrats. Um, Thank you. He knew I was coming on with you today. Um, but awesome. appreciate you coming on. And uh, big thanks to our sponsors, uh, Work Innovators, where they're amplifying the voice of business, to Craig Shelley Beverly Hills, where they're bringing uh, – uh, fine jewelry and luxury watches and actually to help charities and nonprofits across the world. And finally to Success North Dallas where Bill Wallace has been connecting uh, and networking people for 30 years and growing businesses. Uh, thanks everyone for coming on. Thanks David and we look forward to uh, next time. Thanks Dan. Appreciate it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.